Booster is excited to support DIA Schools Collaborative on furthering the missions of our respective organizations through Follow to Lead podcast and other DIA programming. Visit ChooseBooster.com for details on Booster's school fundraising events, technology, and customized spirit gear. Booster can help your Catholic school meet and exceed its fundraising goals. Learn more today. Welcome to Follow to Lead, where we discover how to listen for and follow God's call so that we might lead others to God. Our shared stories of inspiration from religious leaders and those active in the educational ministry of the church can help you know better how God is calling you and the role passionate Catholic education plays in spreading His message of faith, hope, and love. Now please welcome the hosts of Follow to Lead, Father Randy Sly and Kyle Pietrantonio. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Christ the teacher, teach us to listen. Teach us to do the deep listening to the sounds of our soul, waiting to hear your voice calling out to cast out deeper, to become fishers of men and women, shepherds of souls, to follow your will in order to lead others to the truth, beauty, and goodness only you can offer, amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Well, welcome to Follow to Lead, a journey twice a month into the world of Catholic education, exploring what it means to follow God in order to lead others to Him. I'm Father Randy Sly, your host. And today we will be talking with Dr. Margarita Muni Suarez, an associate professor in the Department of Practical Theology at Princeton Theological Seminary. As a Cuban-American woman whose work lies at the intersection of the social sciences with philosophy and theology, Margarita Muni Suarez excels in encouraging students, readers, listeners, and audiences to think about the important questions in culture, education, and faith in new and different ways. In addition to her work at Princeton Theological Seminary, she is also the founder and executive director of the Scala Foundation, a nonprofit organization dedicated to restoring meaning and purpose to universities and schools by promoting liberal arts education. She earned her MA and PhD in sociology from Princeton University and her BA in psychology at Yale University. Prior to her position at Princeton, she's also been on the faculty at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, Yale University, Princeton University, and Pepperdine University. So Dr. Moni Suarez is frequent speakers, or as a frequent speaker rather, at women's organizations, schools, and youth groups, church groups, and a variety of other nonprofits, as well as with business and public policy think tanks. She, the, she is the author of several books, including The Love of Learning, Seven Dialogues on the Liberal Arts, and her newest book, which has just come out, The Wounds of Beauty, Seven Dialogues on art and education that has just been public or published. Dr. Mooney Suarez, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Great to be here, Father Randy. And just to explain to those that are listening to the podcast, if there's a little bit of an echo, you've just moved into a new home and not quite settled. That's right. And I'm sorry, there should be paintings on the wall, especially for a podcast about beauty, but the paintings are still in boxes, but they'll be up next time. (laughs) I understand. Anyway, so we are so glad that you're with us today. And while we want to focus, of course, on the Scala Foundation and your new book, would you share just a little bit about your upbringing with an Irish Cuban heritage? Your growing up years must have been truly interesting. I was born in Frederick, Maryland. I'm the youngest of four children. My mother, Eulalia Maria Suarez, is from Havana, Cuba, where she studied with Sisters of the Sacred Heart, came to the United States in her 20s and wanted to go to college where she met my father at Catholic University of America at chess club and she beat him. He was very (laughs) impressed and never looked back. My father, Vincent Muni, was from New York, went to school mostly with the Jesuits and they brought me up going to a Catholic school in Frederick, Maryland, but with all kinds of activities at the home from sandboxes to maps on the walls to mathematics is fun with my dad when I was five. And so 
I was a curious kid and an athletic kid with three older brothers. And as I matured and went through school, you know, was blessed to get into Yale University and felt like all the doors in the world were opening to me. And in some ways that was true. But now that I've become a professor, what I'll be sharing with you today is how in some ways I've returned to the foundational roots of the kind of education I got at home and in my schools and why I want to share this message today with parents, educators, anybody who helps educate the next generation, leaders like yourself who work in churches and in media. We are at a crucial time in this country where education has shifted enormously and I see a movement towards a kind of classical liberal arts model and a holistic view of the human person that I think is really hopeful. But there are also powerful counter models to that vision of education right. we're going to discuss today. Okay, Th this is going to be, I, I got to tell you, I'm just really looking forward to our talk because I told you before we began our recording that I just devoured your book. It is really wonderful. I do want to encourage others to get the wounds of beauty. It's, it's really a wonderful read. Now, after finishing your undergraduate degree at Yale, you had an interesting job. You worked for the Arias Foundation for Peace and Human Progress in San Jose, Costa Rica, and you were working with the former president, Oscar Arias. What was that like? And did that make an impact on your future educational choices and career? Absolutely. Because I had been raised in a Hispanic family and around Hispanic immigrants, not only from Cuba, but Mexico, Central America, when I graduated from Yale, I, I wanted to look into my own roots, my own identity. And I was blessed to work under President Arias, who had won a Nobel Peace Prize. And because I was bilingual, I could help him with some of his translating some of his work for international audiences. And I also traveled across Central America in the mid-1990s and met with former combatants of the very bloody civil wars in El Salvador, Nicaragua, and Guatemala. And those trips shattered, I would say, a little bit of my Ivy League hubris because I saw on the one hand that although someone like Oscar Arias is a great leader, they can have a tremendous impact on the world. But there are hundreds and thousands of people doing small acts of hard work, charity, and also moral acts of forgiveness for violence that are absolutely essential to rebuilding after a civil war. So I came away from my experiences perhaps a bit different than some of my colleagues in psychology or sociology because I had seen firsthand the aftermath of revolutions. I had also made seven trips to Cuba in the 90s and early 2000s, which had tried to create a man-made utopia mm -hmm. and truly expel the church. And so I saw the moral degradation of the human person in Cuba. And I was so grateful to have had an upbringing in the United States with religious freedom, good education, and a good opportunity to further myself. But I was also truly humbled by the people who with the work of their hands and the love in their hearts set about tilling the soil and loving other people without necessarily trying to calculate what's in it for them. Now, following your time there in, in Costa Rica, you went back and did your graduate degrees. And did, did you find yourself immediately kind of knowing exactly what you wanted to do in the areas of sociology, or was there still a little bit of, of discovery yet to take place? Oh, lots of discovery. I mean, I did what I did as a kid. I would devour the books that we were assigned. I would spend hours in the library. And perhaps also it's important to note, I followed my intuition and I followed my curiosity. So I was curious about Haiti as a country in the Caribbean close to Cuba, but French and Haitian Creole speaking. Mm -hmm. and I followed that intuition. I studied the country's history. I studied the, the language, Haitian Creole. And then I spent time in Haiti and amongst Haitian immigrants. So I was all along trying to combine book knowledge and historical knowledge 
with in-person encounters with people to discuss the issues and the questions that I had about international development, about poverty, about faith in God in the midst of destruction. And I learned so much, both from the history books and from people's stories. And I was so blessed to have mentors, people like Professor Al Rabito, an African-American historian of religion and his wonderful book, Slave Religion, that was a model for me because it was both a close historical analysis, but also took seriously first person accounts of experience, not separated from doctrine or history, but in dialogue with it. So it was that kind of social history, that of Robert Orsi's Madonna of 115th Street, Al Rabito, who I've already mentioned, the rich tradition of ethnography, figures like Victor Turner, Mary Douglas, that's both deeply conceptual and grounded historically but pays attention to human experience. And human experience, all of those people concluded, is open to the mystery and sees the created world and sees history both as a present reality, but, as, but also as revealing something to us about eternity and the transcendence. And now that is where I began to struggle with my colleagues in sociology because after reading, for example, Alistair McIntyre's After Virtue, I realized that so much of modern philosophy and by extension, the modern social sciences have tried to bracket off mystery. Mm -hmm. Right. That, that to me was one of the things that I picked up in a lot of the dialogues in your book is kind of a, a need to reintegrate those different disciplines. With Absolutely. And that's why I, I as you, in, you know, introduced me as someone whose work lies at the intersection of social science with philosophy and theology. You know, the other thing that I've encountered is that people with academic degrees in theology and philosophy may never have actually interviewed somebody or tried to describe a congregational worship and look at how people are actually interacting with symbols. They, they tend to go to texts, right? Texts of doctrine, texts of thinking. But I do think that the tools of social science, in particular ethnography interviews, close, closely done case studies, should shed a lot of light on the questions of philosophy and theology. So when we begin to work in integrating those things together, we actually find ourselves being informed both by concept and by people, which takes away the ivory tower idea. Absolutely. I mean, I think that I don't privilege the knowledge of experts, nor do I privilege everyday experience because both can be flawed, right? Mm -hmm. So what I do see is that whether one is quote unquote an expert or an intellectual or whether or not someone is someone who's never been to school like many of the people I interacted with in Haiti, human beings have an innate capacity to reflect on their experience in light of tradition and culture and forms of knowledge. And there's a saying in Haitian Creole, Analphabet, pabet. Being illiterate doesn't mean you're stupid. Mm -hmm. We have so equated intelligence with rational cognitive literary skills that we have forgotten that transition, that tradition, liturgy, built culture, conversation, family are also ways that we pass on knowledge. Books are extremely important. I love books. I read all the time, but they're not the only path to knowledge because as Aquinas has affirmed and as the Catholic tradition tells us, we are created in the image of God, which means mm -hmm. God gave us the capacity to look out at the world and see the truth. And I think sometimes intellectuals like myself take on so much conceptual baggage that we get attached to our theories and we think we know before we look. Mm -hmm. You know, this would, I'm, I'm so tempted to kind of rabbit trail off into talking about the implications of social media on all of that. But I'm going to defer that. Maybe we'll, we'll revisit that at a, at a later broadcast. But I really want to kind of segue into the Scala Foundation, because I know that one of the things that was in your heart as you founded that is you said the mission of the foundation is to renew American culture and re restoring 
beauty and wisdom to the liberal arts. And I think wisdom is not necessarily just accumulated knowledge. So could you kind of tell us what the Scala Foundation is about and what it looks like to restore beauty and wisdom? I started Scala in 2016 when I moved to Princeton Theological Seminary to take on a tenured position in, what, in the Department of Practical Theology. But I really wanted to share with students and colleagues this vision of classical liberal arts education that was so central to the founding of this country. This country is based on principles of political freedom, economic freedom, and religious freedom. And no Nothing is more important to the culture of freedom than education. And I'm persuaded that if we don't understand the proper end of education, we simply cannot sustain the kind of society that we were founded to be. Now, I'm paraphrasing here one of my favorite thinkers, Jacques Maritain, who says all of this very clearly and succinctly, I think, in his book, Education at the Crossroads, written in mm -hmm. 1842, a French Catholic convert philosopher appreciative of American pragmatism and practicality, but concerned at the denigration of the human person and turning the human person into an instrument, a doing in the world, not a being in the world. So these terms, beauty and wisdom, well, you know, we use these terms all the time, but you rightly ask, what do I mean when I use them? Well, I think Maritain, drawing on Aquinas, of course, says that beauty is an experience, right? It's a perception through the natural or artistic lens where we perceive the order of the universe, right? So Maritain calls beauty, again, drawing on Aquinas, the splendor of the secrets of being radiating into intelligence. Now, I'm sure if you don't sit around reading philosophy, that sounds like a lot of just big words. But let me draw this out, which he does again so beautifully in this book, Creative Intuition in Art and Poetry, right? We're so used to think of to thinking of knowledge as, as you, I think, have said, as simply seeing the surface of something, right? We've memorized something, or we've, we've perceived something, right? But that's a kind of empiricist, right? Simply on the surface. What Maritain says, I mean, we're also trying to think of knowledge as perhaps a tool, right? What Benedict calls techni, right? Does this do this, right? Does this have this effect on that? Well, what Maritain is saying actually is that the proper use of human intelligence is to see kind of how what it is we're doing leads to an, an ultimate order that we can perceive. So really wisdom is the uniting of reason and intuition mm -hmm. because that intuition is so important to see again, the meaning of something, the sign of something. And again, in Christianity, because we believe in the incarnation, God became man. Material order has a natural component but it also is a sign. It's a sign of an eternal reality. And so what Maritain is affirming is that there's nothing wrong with empirical knowledge or technical knowledge. That's wonderful, but it's not the proper end of education. The proper end of education is the moral formation of the person to be able to perceive these deeper layers of reality which then guide the use of our empirical, scientific, and technical knowledge. So in a sense, I remember listening to someone years ago talking about wisdom, our wisdom is basically knowledge guided by experience. Would that basically kind of fit into where you're heading? Well, I think what Maritain emphasizes, which goes along with this idea of knowledge being having an experiential dimension, there's a process here, right? So what Maritain describes is this process whereby we perceive something and based on our perception, we act in the world and then we reflect back upon it and so improve the way that we act. This is how science works, right? So if we're gonna create a car or a bridge, you don't design it perfectly the first time around. Nobody does that. 
you actually have to see it outside of the experimental place working in the world where all the factors of the world are now weighing upon that bridge mm -hmm. or that car, right? And so it's the processual, right? It's this, it's this dynamism. And I like this description of knowledge and wisdom, really wisdom as having this dynamism because the human person is at the center. So knowledge is not simply an accumulation of facts and you add it together and you get a product. The human person is also is always reflecting on and improving and applying that knowledge. Now let's talk a second about beauty that goes along with wisdom. One of the things that I know you've talked about in your book and other places is that too often beauty is thought of in terms of the artistic self-expression of the artist rather than what is being received, that we're supposed to appreciate the artist's experience rather than our own. Could you talk a little bit about beauty? Absolutely. I began to read about beauty because it was honestly not something I had encountered much about in psychology or in sociology. But I felt when I took a character strengths test in my class on positive psychology and I came out lowest on appreciation of beauty, I thought, what's happened to me? I love nature and art and why don't I appreciate beauty? But then I began to ask a deeper question, well, what is what is beauty and how is beauty related to the human person? So part of what's happened is that although I had taken classes on art history and beauty, I had never encountered the idea that beauty represents, that beauty has a representational dimension, a sign that points to the mystery, to the transcendent. So as Pope Benedict says, and this is where I get the title from my book, in, an, in a talk he gave in Italy, he talks about beauty wounding us, right? Mm. So beauty is not only sort of, it's true that in a Christian understanding, beauty can console us in suffering, but Benedict says it's more than that. Beauty, the experience of nature or a beautiful concert or a beautiful work of art pierces the heart mm. and leaves us thirsting for more. And so that's why experiencing beauty, right? Again, beauty is not purely an abstraction or something conceptual, right? It's something that happens to us and it calls on us to respond to it. And so what I think has happened in many humanities programs and in many arts programs, the focus has shifted from the transcendent meaning of beauty to the personal expression, right? That what art ultimately is, is simply the self-expression of the artist. Well, this breaks the historical relationship between beauty and science, right? Classical music composers, architects, painters, all would have thought of a mathematical, rational basis for what they're creating. And they would have thought of what they're creating as an expression of the self, but a kind of a self-gift to others. There's a big difference between self-expression and self-gift. So I think self-gift upholds the creativity of the artist and God gives people different gifts. But in self-gift, we're offering up our gift and our talent to create something that has a meaning. What, what again, what Aquinas would say, claritas, right? Beauty is supposed to communicate. And if beauty is self-expression, but nobody else understands what that expression is, you haven't communicated anything. So again, these, so beauty as self-gift has to communicate a message. And then Aquinas also says beauty has integritas, wholeness. And so whatever a particular creation of beauty is, one always asks, how is that related to a whole? Where does that fit into a larger story? So saying that beauty is self-expression is, at best partially true, but it leaves out beauty as self-gift and it leaves out beauty as integritas and claritas. It's interesting. I was just thinking about a book that I had read many, 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 many years ago called My Name is Asher Lev by Kaim Potok. And it's a story of a, of a young Hasidic Jewish boy who has a great gift of art. And one of the things that his teacher said that he needed to do in order to discover the true nature of his gift is to paint the crucifixion. Mm. 
as a Jewish young boy to paint the crucifixion as a means of, of self-discovery and also of, of this whole idea of self-gift and integritas as we were talking about. I just thought that's fascinating. Those those kinds of stories have been with us, but still we've somehow abandoned or kind of moved the spotlight too much over to the individual. And is that fair to say? Oh, absolutely. I think that in a good way, right? As I said, the United States is founded on, on freedom. And it's important that we are all kind of individually made, unique people, irrepeatable. I believe in all that but we're also fundamentally participatory. Right. And so we are made to share and we're and we're made to participate together in other things. And so what I think we're struggling with in so much of Catholic education and all educational circles is really the achievement culture where knowledge has become something that you acquire and apply. Well, that completely leaves out the receptivity of knowledge, completely leaves out learning from the past, you know, why would you copy a piece of art that's been done before? Why would you memorize a poem? You know, why would you learn all of it? Anything like that. And, you know, John Dewey, who's been so influential in American understanding of education and teacher training, essentially says that the only thing we need from the past is what can be retooled for the future, because everything becomes part of the scientific experiment and we create something new. This is, I think, a concept of progress where the past really does become irrelevant because whatever is good from the past, we make something new all the time. Well, there's nothing to preserve there. And there's this kind of hubris that we're always going to get it right. And if we just keep tinkering, we'll get it right. But we don't actually have to learn from ancient sources of wisdom. Well, I know one artist who read Dewey's book on, on education, and she decided that the best thing she could do as an artist would be to put his book in the blender and create something new. That's great. Yeah, that really is the idea of modernity, isn't it? That that which is in the past is gone, and we just have to focus on the now. Well, let's talk about the, the, the Scala Foundation in terms of its actual work of, of bringing about this restoration and renewal. What, what does the Scala Foundation do with schools with students to help bring about some of this restoration and renewal? Scala aims to provide resources for students, educators, parents, as well as conferences, summer programs, and workshops. So I would certainly point your, your listeners to my two books that have emerged from the various events I've done with Scala. The first was Love of Learning, Seven Dialogues on the Liberal Arts, and most recently, The Wounds of Beauty, Seven Dialogues on Art and Education. Both of those are available through Clooney Media, my publisher, and of course, on Amazon. And those books were the, I would say, the end result of years of dialogue with students, parents, and educators. And in fact, I, I want to point out one of the unique things about the book is that both of the books are dialogues. There are collections of conversations I had with great scholars. Why did I do that? Well, a lot of classical learning was done dialogically. Most of Jesus's teachings have come to us dialogically. Although we often don't remember Aquinas's writings that I've been citing were done dialogically to debate with people who disagreed with him. So I'm putting on the page what happens in a seminar room. You encounter great texts, you quote from it, you engage with the ideas, you clarify through back and forth, and then you try to draw out some applications. Because those, because those books have come out, I've also given workshops for teachers and for parents and board members or directors of Catholic or Christian schools or public schools that are trying to implement a classical liberal arts model. And those workshops can take the form of, I think, really understanding what are the alternatives, what are the challenges today in education. So the kind of what I mentioned already several times, a liberal arts model, which upholds a unity of knowledge, which sees the person in a holistic way, mind, spirit, and body, right? So emphasizing experience, but not cut off from, from rational thinking and also emphasizing the integration of beauty with the search for truth and the good life. And the competitors out there, I think, are a kind of, let me get the highest test scores and get into the best schools, right? So knowledge becomes an achievement. 
or knowledge becomes a means of social progress, which again, I would attribute to Dewey and also to Paulo Freire, who's been also a staple of many programs in education, including many of those where our Catholic school teachers have gone. And I think that there's a partial truth in this idea that the school is a site for social reform, as Dewey says. But the problem that I've mentioned already with Dewey and Frere is that they completely neglect the spiritual dimension of the person. And so therefore their view of history, it, you know, for the progressives, it's, it's linear. Everything's moving in a good direction. Well, that takes out the cosmological and it takes out God's action, God's grace in the world, right? Mm -hmm. And for Freire, you know, he's really taken on a dialectical view that we have the thesis and the antithesis. We have the oppressed and the oppressors. So for all of his words about dialogue as the, as the method of education, there's a deeper presupposition there that dialogue is only for the oppressed. And the end of dialogue is also given that the oppressed see themselves as being oppressed by their oppressors. So he, he slips in all of these philosophical presuppositions while he just talks about it as a method. And I, I think both Dewey and Frere make this mistake. Perhaps it was an honest mistake. They believed that you could have a method of education without a philosophy of the person. And I think that they were wrong. I think they're slipping in a different philosophy of the person that's essentially, to use a you know, big word, homo faber. We are beings who do. Well, we're also homo poeta, we're, we're beings who receive. And I think this receptivity of human nature has been so forgotten in education because we're just rushing. We're rushing to change the world. We're rushing to get to the next, to get the next test. And as I mentioned, I deeply care about all of the social justice issues. My writing before this was all on war, immigration. I've written on addiction. I've written on mental illness. I care deeply about the social problems that ail us, but it's because I've encountered people in the midst of their suffering from war, from context, and also from perhaps, you know, the abuse that they've suffered that's led them down a self-destructive path. But when you're sitting face to face with somebody who's been truly victimized by something horrible or who has done something horrible to themselves, like abuse heroin, I want to affirm that they're a moral being. And right. because they're moral beings, they have, a, they have freedom about how to respond to that circumstance. And they have the freedom to forgive the people who've harmed them. And they have the freedom to accept God's loving mercy if they've harmed themselves or harmed other people. And so we can't let people imprison themselves in their context or in their victimhood. And this is not the message of Christianity. And it's not the message that any educator should be giving because it leads to this oppositional culture to blaming others and leaves out this possibility, as I mentioned before, of God's grace acting in the world to change our hearts and to open up new paths. Instead, the world just becomes one giant problem for us to conquer. And this, I think, ultimately leads to despair. So basically what we are doing is building an identity around blame or around our situation, our circumstances, rather than seeing ourselves, for example, as a child of God who is capable of transcending or and moving beyond our circumstances. Absolutely. And as I said earlier, as a student and, you know, a bookworm, I've been really drawn to the kind of history that has a strong bi biographical element, right? Humans learn through moral exemplars. We learn through other people's lives. So when I was struggling to figure this all out, I went to figures who I thought lived in the world in ways that I wished I could. Figures like Mother Teresa, figures like John Paul II, 
figures like Edith Stein. And I began to read their biographies and I began to read about what influenced them and how did they persevere in these vocations to serve others. In the case of Edith Stein, converting to Catholicism, still being murdered as a Jew by the Nazis. How did they look at the face of evil, John Paul II in Poland, Mother Teresa, the poverty of India, how did they look at these horrible circumstances and persevere in hope in order to continue that work of building a more just world? Because that's the kind of social scientist and professor of practical theology that I wanted to be. And what I had seen in communities where people truly have been victimized by violence and poverty and war is that a lot of people want to come help, but they sort of pop in and pop out. And when they see the depth of the problem, they pull away. And it becomes very easy to say, well, if we could just change the fact that there is, you know, fill in the blank structure, then I wouldn't have to face this problem. Well, but in the meantime, people really are suffering and they have the capacity to act on their environment, but it's difficult to walk the walk with people who have suffered very deeply. And I think sometimes one of the mistakes of progressivism is that if you wanna help people, you can't be hurting them. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to help people and not do, and not in my thinking I was helping actually potentially hurt them morally or even economically. One of the things that I know you talk about through your writing and through the Scala Foundation is that the, an answer can be really found in a renewal and a restoration of classical education, classical liberal arts education. For the teachers and administrators that may be listening to the broadcast that, let's say, are, are they're just in a, a typical Catholic school, they may be thinking, well, does that mean that we have to change to grammar, logic, and rhetoric as the the approach to education, that we have to become a classical school in terms of our model? Or are there ways in which the things you're talking about that can be integrated into the current schools that they're working in today? Well, I've given this talk, this, I've talked about this subject all across the country, including to public school teachers. And so I often get this question. Well, if my school doesn't have a classical model or doesn't or isn't even a Catholic school, you know, how do I apply this? Well, look, one of the things that I really emphasize in my writing and in my speaking is, first of all, that teaching is a vocation, right? If you are listening to this podcast and you are a teacher, or you're working in a school, you have responded to a call to be to be giving of yourself and passing on what you know to others. And so I think the one, perhaps the most applicable thing that I can say to anyone in any context is to remember that. And as I just said, even if your context is working against you, if you see your role as a teacher, not as a bureaucrat, not as someone who's gonna just help students master the next test, not as just, you know, cogs in a machine. And if you prepare yourself spiritually and morally, know your subject, but also love your students and love God, you are changing your students. Because this is what I would call the kind of mimetic theory of learning. Young people, as I've already said, learn from moral exemplars and they can't help it. They look at their parents and they look at teachers and they look at priests and they're looking for a moral exemplar. And if you are someone listening to this that's in a hostile environment to these ideas, it just might be that your light shines even brighter because mm -hmm. the environment has darkness in it. Now, if you're in a position to influence the curriculum of your school, there are really good reasons to have grammar and rhetoric and logic and basic science. And this is why there are associations popping up to help schools return to a classical curriculum. And I think that that's a wonderful thing to do. And so I think reforming, going back to a traditional model of Catholic education, starting a new school, homeschooling. I didn't think homeschooling was a great thing 20 years ago. I have taught people who have been homeschooled who have had a fantastic education. 
And most of their teachers didn't have PhDs. They were parents, they were self-taught. And you know what they did? They went to the internet and they found good resources and they formed little groups and they spread these ideas through their love for their students and for their children. That's really neat. You know, I was thinking about this one part of your book where you are sharing an experience of being on a tour of this Stanford linear particle accelerator. And there was a professor there who was talking about particle physics, but you were, you were so excited, not necessarily with the topic, but with his joy and love and the way that he explained it. And one of the things you said here is teachers need to inspire others to love their subjects. Absolutely. And I, I think that is so, so wonderful perspective to, for a teacher to be sure that the one thing they communicate is their own love for what they're teaching, that they're there to communicate something that's a wonder to them. You know, when I visited a classical school, classical Catholic school here in New, Jer in New Jersey, Koinonia Academy, I toured the school, I met with the teachers, I met with the board, and then I went to an eighth grade science classroom. And I said to the students, what do you tell your friends it's like to go to Koinonia as opposed to something else? And you know what it all came down to? They were sitting here raising their hand and they said, well, I didn't think I would like geography, but Mrs. Smith, she gets so excited about it that I get excited about it. And I go home and tell my parents about it. So it was comments like that. You know, none of the students talked about how wonderful the gym was. Well, you know what? It also wasn't wonderful, but they weren't looking for that. You know, they didn't talk about how this was gonna help them compete and get into the best high school they could in the state of New Jersey. They didn't talk about any of these things that seem to come up as metrics in board meetings or what parents are looking for. They talked about the quality of the interaction with the teacher and the quality of the environment with the other students down to, well, at my public school, people were getting into fights and I was scared all the time. And here I can just relax and focus on studying. And I discover I am a good student and I like studying. Students may not have all of this philosophical language that I'm talking about, but if you ask them what makes them excited about their school, it's making learning fun seeing that the teachers care about their subjects and having an environment where the interaction with the other students is meaningful, ordered, and positive. This may sound a little bit dangerous to say, but I'm wondering sometimes if we need to start seeing ACT scores as something secondary that will come in terms of performance out of the wonder of learning. Does that make sense rather than oh, teaching to the test, you know? Absolutely. And I think that there are also associations that are starting to work on this, right? A lot of the model of classic education or frankly, the moral formation I'm talking about doesn't come out in a test. So I, and again, I've seen this now having taught students who graduated from all different kinds of programs that maybe they didn't get into Princeton University because they didn't have the AC scores, the SAT scores, or frankly, some of the APs. But you know what they have? They have grammar, rhetoric, and logic. They can write a coherent essay. They can take in new information. And you know, look, I have seen students get into the top universities. They don't have wonder, and they don't have awe, and they don't have creativity, and they don't have self-discipline because they have been just so focused on test-taking that they get burned out. So they're highly, they have high capacities of intelligence and they burn out because it seems meaningless to them. So I just started to say, you know, what's the point? Of course we need assessments and we need grades and mm -hmm. students need to be given feedback and to improve. But there's been such an emphasis on test taking as the best measurement of how much has been learned. And I don't think that that's, that that's entirely the story. Now, in, in the book, The Wounds of Beauty, there are seven different dialogues. And again, it's fascinating. One dialogue is, and by the way, they're not interviews, they're dialogues, which I love. You're participating and contributing, not just asking questions. But there's a, a cheese-making nun. There's a public policy advocate. There's professors. How did you pick who to include in the book? Well, I'm fortunate to know personally the people in the book. And so what I did was I took 
the conversations that I was already having in my living room with the historian Peter Brown, who wrote the biography of Augustine, the lunches I was having with Fran Meyer, who worked for many years for Archbishop Chaput. And I studied, I studied the texts that they would talk to me about in our conversations. George Harn at University of St. Thomas, David Clayton, The Way of Beauty, James Matthew Wilson. Part of what you do as a professor is you engage with other scholars and thinkers and thought leaders, and you go read their mm -hmm. sources, right? So Dana Joya personally mentored me through Jacques Maritain, and I wanted to then share with readers the great ideas of Jacques Maritain, Pope Benedict, Bonaventure, and compare them with the Frankfurt School, Adorno, critical theory, which is the origin of critical race theory, John Dewey, and I found that this format of engaging in a dialogue, which as you said, it's not an interview. It's also me kind of putting out a topic, a question, an idea, a concept and having them respond. So it's, it's truly a back and forth between two scholars. And then the chapters themselves had an overall arch. So I started doing this really because these were people who were close to me and who were shaping me intellectually. One of the things that I picked up after reading through the book is that if you can't just read one dialogue, it, it's, it's like that gives you one facet of the diamond. You have to read the entire book in order to get a more of a global view. Is, is that a fair assessment of what you intended to do with the book? That's correct. The book is published as a book because it is a whole and no single chapter can cover everything, right? So for example, I talk about, you know, the creation, the creative part of beauty with someone who's a microbiologist and makes cheese, she's known as the cheese nun, with a painter who actually studied math and physics, but he makes sacred art, and with writers like Dana Joya or James Matthew Wilson. So they're applying the same principles I'd say that's the continuity is that there's a similarity of underlying principles, but being applied into different specific realms of knowledge. And so again, this is John Henry's, Henry Newman's idea of the unity of knowledge. Right. Each of the people we dialogue with is an expert in their subject, whether that's history or art or literature, poetry, microbiology, but they've learned how to connect their particular area of expertise back to these foundational principles, which is why the book feels like a whole, yet each person is contributing from their particular area of expertise. In fact, this is what Sister Noella, the cheese nun, calls the Benedictine approach of the elementals, right? We right. believe in the universal, but we have to enter into it, into it through something particular. One of the things that I loved, and I'm trying to get the names straightened out, but the painter who I think has a background in mathematics and the sciences, it was almost like he had to be set free from the expectations of being in that world to become who he really was, which is a painter. And I thought that was an interesting journey through self-discovery on his part. That is, again, a part of this whole thing of, of beauty, of wisdom, that one of the things we have to do is become comfortable with who we are. Absolutely correct. I mean, again, another word we hear all the time is identity, right? This is this is my identity. This is who I am. But I don't think most people who use that term haven't really thought about debates about the self and identity. And so identity becomes kind of this sort of episodic self-expression that we talked about through art, but it could just be like a piece of my story. I picked these people also because I knew that they had integrated their stories with bigger questions and ultimately with existential questions. So again, one of the goals of the Wounds of Beauty, but also in my earlier book of dialogues, The Love of Learning, is to help readers see that these experts are also people who've had turning points in their lives, who've had to seek how to integrate their, their intuitions and their questions and their talents with a larger thing that they're participating in. So again, I think we've separated out identity into something so individualistic that we don't know anymore how to talk about our identity as participating in something bigger. And this is so transformative. So when the painter that you're mentioning, David Clayton, 
was set free to pursue his passion for art, it doesn't mean that he's not still an Oxford trained scientist. Right. It doesn't mean that he's not still an Englishman, but it means that he has this kind of particular gift, which is for the practical scientific pursuit of painting beautiful objects, but now he's understood that his particular gifts are not purely about self-expression. They're about creating something beautiful for others to, contem to contemplate, to participate in. And so again, I picked people whose understanding of themselves and of beauty was both about being the best that they can be, but self-consciously directed themselves to create history, science, painting, that gives us all a tremendous gift that we can participate in. Because then readers of the book, in your context or in anyone else's context, who pick up that book, they could be a civil engineer, they could be a stay-at-home mom, they could be a college student. They will be inspired by the knowledge and the stories to look at their environment differently and really ultimately to perceive the movement of the spirit in them, guiding them to their vocation. One of the things that, that I see permeating all of the pages is a need for us all to really develop a worldview that is holistic, that, you know, one of the beautiful phrases from Luke's gospel about Jesus growing up years, he said that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Kind of these four different areas all have to be in proper balance for personhood. And I really see that as, as coming forth here, that our need to incorporate that. And, and one of the things that, that really hit me about it is the, the need for this true Christian worldview to really permeate. And I was reading an article the other day by, I can't remember who the author was, but he was quoting Cardinal Ratzinger prior to his selection as, as Pope. And Ratzinger was talking about how the world, and this is my paraphrase, the world understood the idea of eternal life as now being unreal. And what now we're locked into the idea of a man-made utopia. So that our civilization now is not even looking toward the eternal, but we are looking at needing to build utopia here on earth. And this just really seems so disquieting, especially for one that is so focused on wanting to introduce people to the, the hope of eternal life. And you discuss this, I know, with Francis Mayer in the book. What is some of your takeaway on this? Well, I've been profound influenced by Cardinal Ratzinger, Pope Benedict XVI. And I wrote an essay where I talk about some of his views of the eternal. But what I say in that essay, and I use this phrase already and not yet, right? Mm -hmm. That events in history, whether that be the love we have for our children or a beautiful liturgy or a great book, the kind of awe that is sparked by those encounters are actually a participation in the eternal life that awaits us. So I think what characterizes the modern world, which you've just said, is that we're focused on a man-made utopia rather than the fulfillment of our desires being already present, but not yet, right? Because the Christian story of the incarnation and the death and the resurrection of Jesus is a cosmological story that there's a movement of history and human beings have freedom. We create things, we build things, we destroy things. We go against our own best selves, which Paul writes about, of course, in his letters. And within this human drama that has influenced literature, art, and different world religions, within this human drama of the good and the bad within ourselves and in the world, you know, conflicting, within that, God entered time as Jesus Christ. And through his gift of self on the cross, opened up the participation in the eternal that's already with us, but not yet until the end of this cosmological time where we're brought into the fullness of it. So Christian hope, which you alluded to that Ratzinger talks about, 
is not a utopia. It is not a give me a problem and I'll give you a 10 step self-help solution. Christian hope is the knowledge of the presence of God in the midst of our struggles. And with that hope, we can simply get up and keep going, which must have been what sustained Teresa of the cross, Edith Stein, as she was taken to her death at Auschwitz. It's that kind of hope that's an eschatological hope that distinguishes Christian hope from the optimism, which is the subject of my chapter with Fran Meyer, right? We talk about Roger Scruton, a philosopher who had a lot of trouble with optimists, right? And, you know, he said the problem with optimism is that it can lead to these utopian ideas. And we want to be hopeful, but we don't want to be optimistic. We, I mean, Scruton has a famous essay, you know, essay on the uses of pessimism, <laughs> Right. right. So again, it's this 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 utopia that you talked about, this optimism. And the problem with that is that if we don't get it, then we fall into despair. And it's this really negative, you know, head swinging that I see afflicting young people. I love the idea. What was it? He was it practical pre- pessimism that you talk about in the book, I think. And yes. uh, mm-hmm. and it's interesting because most of the time we think of being an optimist as being preferred and being a pessimist is being, you know, dour and all of that. But pessimism is, is something different than that. I, I, I think of in Romans, I think it is where St. Paul is talking about, basically, he said he had to face the fact that his body was as good as dead, but he had the faith to believe that God would continue to work in his life. And I, I think that that's kind of the kind of pessimism that you're, you're alluding to. Absolutely. And, you know, Fran Meyer spoke at Scala's recent conference on art, the sacred and the common good, and his remarks were already published in in First Things magazine. And what he says again is like, there are lots of people looking at culture, politics today, and they see the contention and they see the division. And look, we have to be pessimists to the extent that we need to be realists. There are really, truly things plaguing our society, but we need to look at the darkness with this light of hope. And so I think what I see is people wanting to recoil from the darkness and either retreat into an abstract utopia, which can't be lived, or simply falling to despair. We've had rising rates of suicide, tremendous amounts of mental illness. And so again, we, we, we need to be realistic, but we need to be pessimists with hope, I would say. Especially, I think nowadays we just see the rise of violent people not seemingly responding to the world as they like it, and so they they lash out. It, when our teachers encounter students that are really unnerved, like by the shootings that just took place in Texas and things like that, what kind of wisdom would you give to the teachers on things they could share with their students? Because it's a, it's a pretty wicked looking world right now to a lot of our kids. Well, here's what I've done. I have brought into the classroom, of course, the ancient tradition of, of Lexio Divina, which is an approach to scripture, a contemplative reading of scripture, which includes the kind of looking at the reality of something that's going on, but trying to move oneself into shaping one's memory and an understanding of God's action in this world and ultimately to our understanding of who God is. Now, sometimes when something really traumatic has happened, it's hard to snap people out of that. What I did after one recent terrible event in this country, there's been many, I, first of all, I opened up my class with a prayer. And if you teach in a, in a school that allows you to do that, you should do that in every class. You know, I admit, I forget sometimes, but I opened up with a reflection on God's divine mercy in the midst of it because something tragic had just happened. And then I asked students if there was anything we could pray for. And the first student who spoke didn't speak about the national tragedy. She spoke about a tragedy that affected her, which was that her cousin had overdosed on heroin. And now there was a terrible custody battle for the child. So I understand that in our Catholic schools, we want to be attentive to the national events, but I do think it's important to allow students to speak also about what's affecting them in their hearts and in their lives, because 
looking at the shootings that are happening in school or political events, we feel like things are out of control because those situations, they really are out of our control. But these other situations that are also causing us angst are about relationships that we have. And we need to also bring those out into the light because they could be causing unrest or anxiety and give people a hope that in the terrible family situation I just mentioned of that student, that they can be, a, be, an, be an agent for God's loving mercy in the world. And I think people are longing to hear this. They're longing to hear that the gospel is still alive in this world. I think that's a great way for us to end is just looking again at the hope that we have in Christ, the hope that is ours, and to make sure that we really understand the need to communicate that hope from the classroom and in, in different parts of life. And Dr. Margarita Mooney Suarez, thank you so much for being with us today here on Follow to Lead. And again, if people want to get the book, Wounds of beauty, they can do so. I think it's on Amazon. It's on and Amazon and it's on the publisher, Clooney Media. Clooney Media. That's correct. And the other book is Learning to Love. The, the Love of Learning. Love of Learning. <laughs> okay. Again, Seven Dialogues, which is a great motif again for, for both of those books. And the website for Scala Foundation is? ScalaFoundation.org. Okay. Wonderful. Well, thank you again for being with us. And I, I hope maybe we can do at least one more more broadcast just talking about some of these things in greater depth. This has I been a delight. That. Thank you, Father Randy. Great to be here. Well, if you haven't already for our listeners, and if you would subscribe to our podcast, that would be wonderful. And be sure to leave a comment so that we can be encouraged on selecting our future programming. We also want to thank our intern, Alex Shire, for assisting in the production of this podcast. May Almighty God bless you. We'd like to thank you for joining us on this episode of Follow to Lead, a production of the Duke and Altum Schools Collaborative. To learn more about finding your own path in your journey of faith, or for more information on what we discussed in today's episode, you are invited to follow us on social media and visit us on the web at diaschools.org. To provide a one-time donation or monthly pledge, please visit our website. Your gift will aid us in providing up-to-date information, additional resources, and other support on how to take Catholic education to a higher level. We look forward to helping you follow God's call to lead others to God right here on Follow to Lead.